Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. the ideas, then we'll get into the sort of history of this stuff. The stuff I posted on the CMS, um, as I said, take a look at that tall big thing. There's actually a great BBC documentary about memory that I linked to on there. You should check out. Um, there's a couple things about Hunter Lightning House, and that will be more useful when we talk about the history stuff later on. Alright, just letting you know. And also, uh, there was a problem with uh, my blog site that has uh, people.ac.ca slash project slash blog, the one that has the podcast on it, and that's actually where the PowerPoint slides are, even though they're linked from gayproject.com, which is one of these square checks. That should all be fixed now. It was a problem propagating the DNS chase throughout the internet. That's all it was. And if you know what that means, that's great. If you don't know what that means, um, don't worry about it. Look it up. <laughs> it's, it's really actually not that complicated. Um, so, yeah, we're going to, like I said, introduce the topic, get a, get a feel for this stuff. Um, Right. So, if we're going to start talking about this stuff, psychology, as you guys all know, is divided into a lot of sort of sub-areas. Not like any discipline. It may be the case, in fact, that psychology is one of the, <coughs> the newer sciences is a little broader than a lot of things. I've heard that said, then again, I'm not sure I buy that. Everything's pretty broad when you start looking into it. I think that's for biology, physics, chemistry, uh, anything. So, but psychology is a lot of sub areas. Um, I would say that, 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 that memory itself, the study of memory, is a part of cognitive psychology. How many people here are taking Lori's cognition class? Oh, good, good chunk of you. So that's excellent. Um, clearly, it's a part of cognitive psychology. So we're going to start out by defining what cognition is. And my definitions that I'm going to show you may be different than what Laurie had, but they're probably not that different. Um, and I'm just picking, I picked these out of books that I just had sitting on my shelf. So that's why I didn't go to, there aren't horribly recent things, and that's why one of those 1994. The Matlin book, though, her definition of cognition I don't think has changed. She writes one of the great books in cognition. I don't know if that's the book you're using, Matlin's book, but... I know Lori's used it in the past. I know I've used it when I taught the cognition course. Back in the course, it was called Memory and Cognition. And then we thought, why don't we split those two up? Because there's enough for two courses. So cognition, mental, it's mental activity. Ah, that's good. Involves the acquisition, storage, and retrieval, retrieval and the use of knowledge. Right? So you might say that's learning, acquisition. And then we got to store it. And then we retrieve it so we get it back from where it was. And then, but it's the use of knowledge. It's, which is pretty broad. I'm not even going to try to find knowledge. Gleitman, I used, you know what I did? That, that, that's my intro psych quote that I used to pay for my intro psych. Uh, Gleitman, Henry Gleitman, great cognitive psychologist, did his PhD with uh, Edward Tolman, those of you guys that took uh, learning with me last term. He's the guy that put the rats in the little carts and drove them around the maze. It's Henry Gleitman. Gleitman was an amazing psychologist, but so was his wife. So 
There are a number of Blakeman and Blakeman papers. What organisms know and how they know it? Nice, straightforward. That's what cognition is. And pretty similar. Uh, why did I pick Ellis in 1983? Because that's the book that I used in a course I took on memory <coughs> in 1985. And it was sitting on my shelf. Cognitive psychology proceeds with its study of functioning through uh, mental function through the scientific method. And it goes on and on. So we're talking about mental functioning. We're talking about, notice how it doesn't necessarily say it's stuff that is accessible to consciousness. God, I hate that word. So we're not necessarily aware of our cognitional. In fact, we're probably not aware of most of our cognition. And I'm pretty sure we're not aware of most of our memory. Right? Things just happen. And that, this says that, just says it's study of mental functioning. It doesn't mention at all, and none of the three definitions so far have actually specifically or explicitly mentioned consciousness or availability to consciousness. You think about something like knowing how to ride a bicycle. You can't really describe to me how to ride a bike. Oh, you can, but you'd be wrong. If I ask you how to turn, how do you, uh, and a lot of you guys who took out Blue Psych uh, let me know this, so don't jump in and say, I know, I'm clever. <laughs> how do you turn a bicycle to the right? Danny, go ahead. You turn to the left first. Yeah. So you were, you, you, you heard me say that once? No. Really? I know. <laughs> when you ask most people how they turn a bike left or right, they say you turn the handlebars left or right. You know what happens when you do that? You fall. It's simple physics. This is why kids, when they learn to ride a bike, right? You ever, most of us learn to ride a bike as kids, and it's usually like this. Your dad's going behind you, holding the seat, and he's letting go. And then he lets go, he's walking beside you, even though he, then he says, turn, and you turn, and you fall, and you just fall. And your dad never says to you, just turn a little bit to the left and the right. Because that would also involve you knowing you're left and right, and you're six years old. <laughs> And then your dad threatens to, because you keep screwing up in judo class, he says, well, I'm just going to paint your toes on your right foot with uh, toenail polish that your mother has. And then you suddenly learn your left and right. That might have just been me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually learned it the left. And I still sometimes, now I know you got, i got to be pretty out there for some reason, but remembering left and right, and I still think of left as where the tape was on my glasses when I was six. And it's amazing I can do that because my tape was on my glasses until I was you know, 17. Uh, it's really, really worked with chicks. But it was either that or walk around like this, hello, are you a girl or a guy? I don't know. <laughs> Can't tell. I have no idea. But typically when you ask people, and you ask me, uh, and this has been done a number of times, I mean, Bernie is the famous attorney, asking undergraduate students, how do you turn a bicycle in the vast majority of among higher than 90% so you turn to the right? And then you, when he tells them, no, you turn a little bit to the left, most people don't believe it. And then you have them do it, and then you show them a video, and they go, oh, I guess you do. And again, your dad probably didn't teach you that, or your mom would have taught you how to bike, because they don't know it either. It's not accessible to cognition. It is memory. You are doing it. It's persistence of learning, if you want to jump ahead of it and say, what's well, memory? But it's not available at all to our consciousness. We don't know. So, so far, these three definitions haven't mentioned at all, do we, we, it's stuff we know, but we don't know we know it. 
Dude. <laughs> um, I quite like what Endel Coleman had to say here. And that's that one of the unmistakable characteristics of the mutual science is its explicit definitions. Uh, Colvin, a great, like I mentioned the other day, great psychologist, probably the most influential experimental psychologist of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, it was amazing how, just that he existed at all to general, that he's Canadian, he was at U of T, and he was there when I was in graduate school, and just... You go into the talks. The cognition group has talks. In fact, they will have one today at 1230 because they've been having talks at 1230 on Wednesdays since the 1960s. It's a group called, they call themselves the Ebbinghaus House Empire, which is kind of cool. And Paul Bing, I don't think he works, he's retired from there. So he retired from there back when he had a mandatory retirement in Canada, and then he moved to another university in the States. He still has affiliations with UFT. But he would sit there, and he had a seat he sat in. I know it had assigned seats. Because, you know, it's just graduate students and faculty, and you sit around, and a famous guy comes and gives a talk, or a graduate student gives a talk, or a faculty member from UFT gives a talk, and all the famous thing. But it was fun, because always a first-year student, very first class, a first-year student would sit in what was holding seat. And we would all vie for, who wants to go tell that guy that he's sitting in an indoor holding seat? It's always kind of fun. One year I got to go, Professor Tolbert's seat. Oh, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's amazing. He also, you can't call him Endel until he, he invites you to call him Endel because you have to have a PhD. And he, you know that. That's his rule. He's very old school European. That's cool. That's his rule. So he's called Sir or Professor Tolving, and that's fine. And then traditionally, when his PhD students get their PhD after their oral, he, he greets them and says, you typically get the same thing from all of them when you finish your PhD, which is you come out, they shake your hand, they say, congratulations, Dr. Ryback, you're going to go, yeah. Well, what Endel tends to do is he says, you may not call me Endel. And apparently Daniel Schachter, we'll hear a lot about Dan Schachter, too. Dan Schachter said, you can start calling me Dr. Schachter, actually. <laughs> no one knows that that's true, but it's sort of the story everyone at U of T is told. It's this apocryphal story. But Tolving's great. We're like, hey, he's right. Well, this stuff has made great strides since probably the mid-50s when the quote, cognitive revolution happened. It's still, there's a hell of a lot more that we don't know than we do know. And I'm not saying that, that that's not true in other sciences, but I think it's even more true uh, in, in cognitive psychology and memory. So, Let's think about the ideas of what cognition is and then think about it in terms of memory. <clears throat> There's some commonalities about these definitions. One of them, I think, is pattern recognition. Because you have to be able to look at, if you want to acquire knowledge, you have to recognize that those are words, those are numbers, that that's a map, and that's a bicycle, and whatever. You have to recognize patterns. So no matter what, Memory is going to somehow involve pattern recognition. It has to. It's going to involve attention. I don't think it explicitly said that, but the idea of learning without any attention at all, without, and attention is just uh, putting processing power towards something. We have a finite amount of attention, and we put processing power towards certain things. And if you're not putting any of your processing power towards something, you're not going to remember it, because you're never going to store it. Right? 
Knowledge about the world. Well, the word knowledge is mentioned in a couple of those definitions of, of cognition. Um, this is a kind of memory we talk about. How, this is how stuff works. This is knowing facts. Right? And they're facts that are true for everyone. So it's not that, you know, if I mentioned my fifth birthday, it was different than your fifth birthday. Right? The experience itself. I'm not sure I remember my fifth birthday. Is that where they get the IQ test? IQ tests do have knowledge with the world in uh, And that's why memory, in fact, is an important part of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't remember what you've learned, does it matter? I mean, it's completely useless, right? So there actually are general knowledge parts of a lot of IQ tests, for sure. And in fact, IQ tests have digits standing in them. When they give you a list of numbers, and you can repeat them back. And then they also have backwards digits standing in They give you a list of numbers, and repeat them back in reverse order. That just shows your ability to process stuff. So yeah, it certainly shows up in IQ test numbers. No doubt about that. So this is a kind of memory, and this is, by the way, memory that is inaccessible, again, to cognition. Yeah, did. The knowledge of the world, is that, um, does that include the implicitly and explicitly it's a, it, This is implicit. It's, uh, it could be, it's often explicitly required, acquired. In fact, for example, in what I'm teaching you today, when you go to write a test, you likely won't remember this in an autobiographical sense. And in fact, my goal is that you don't, because that's completely useless. It doesn't matter that you remember what hoodie you were wearing and what hoodie I was wearing. We were wearing hoodies. We didn't call each other today. <laughs> um, that's irrelevant. But I want you to remember what attention is, for example. Right? So that's going to eventually be just knowledge about the world, but it has to probably go through some explicit thing because you made a point of trying to remember it. Um, it becomes implicit, though. We don't know. It's not... How many capitals of countries do you know? I don't think anyone's can name that number. We can figure it out, but you don't know it. You can probably give a ballpark guess. Probably plus or minus 20, you can tell me. But that's not explicitly available to you. And it's not available to cognition. However, if I said to you, what's the capital of Vietnam? And you said Hanoi. Well, there's one you know. Right? So it's that kind of thing where this knowledge originally has to come in, usually explicit, often explicitly, but then it becomes implicit. I don't know how to read, and it's not that I'm illiterate. It's just I don't know how I read. I just do. I learned it. I remember sending words out. Remember doing that when you were a kid? At ten tion. At attention. It's attention. Because kids talk like that, I guess, is what I'm going for there. <laughs> But I don't say that words anymore. It doesn't happen. I say that words sometimes when I'm reading French, but even then now, and that, that doesn't happen much. Right? Or if I'm reading a foreign language I don't know, and it's using our alphabet, and I know how, 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 that, how that language uses the alphabet, I can read the words. I don't know what they mean. Right? You ever like read the German instructions and something, just for fun, out loud? Read a really angry voice. <laughs> Look at the headphones in! You know, things like that. <laughs> should stop picking on the Germans. <laughs> so yeah, the, you know, we, we don't know, how, I don't know how I do it, but I do know how to read. So I mean, that is implicit knowledge. Right? Then there are autobiographical events. 
So I remember my first day of elementary school. I remember it because, uh, well, I remember where I went to school. Now, I, don't, I remember what it looked like. That's not a biographical event. I remember the name of the school, Rancho Public School in Toronto. I don't remember my teacher's name. I remember her perfume. Uh, I, remember what, I remember a dress she wore, but, and again, I think that might have been our school picture. I remember what I was wearing, and that's the reason I remember that is because I didn't want to wear the clothes my mom put, up, put on me. Well, you should look nice. It's your first day of school, David. And it was 19, <coughs> kindergarten, it would have been 1970. So I'm wearing this yellow button-up shirt and plaid pants, because apparently that, that was really 1970. I looked like I was in Vegas or something. <laughs> and some kind of kerchief unit around my, like, I looked like a, I should have had a cigarette in my hand, you know? <laughs> Maybe a martini. <clears throat> but I remember that because I remember getting lost on the way back from the bathroom. I asked the teacher if I'd go to the bathroom. I went, I came back, and I remember walking back, and this was the early 70s, in schools, they had these open concept schools, which just meant, just learn what you want and run free. It was the 70s. <laughs> so... There weren't really classrooms so much as little areas where you went to school. And I go pee and I come back and it's like, there's just kids everywhere. I don't know what. I, ah, I started crying. I remember looking down and seeing the most horrible pants in the baby universe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the thing is, that's not a biographical event. The part that I went to Ranchdale Public School, that is probably knowledge about the world. That's not really autobiographical. The story about me getting lost, that is just about me. That's clearly just about me, right? So that's in there too. There's also imagery. I can remember what it looked like when I looked down and I started crying because I looked down and saw horrible pants and I started crying. This happens to be daily, by the way. Um, cry a lot. I'm kidding. Some of these are jokes. Um, or. You ever write a test and imagine the textbook? Do you ever do that? Who all here thinks they can imagine textbooks? Put your hand up if you've ever done that. Oh, yeah, that graph. It's up on the top left page of the... You know you're wrong. <laughs> you can't. The data show this. We think... If you ask people who have that you experience, it's pretty simple. You give them a page and you have four graphs on it. And then you say, where was this graph? And people are 100% sure. When, they, when they're sure, they're completely sure. Yeah, top right quadrant. It's like, yeah, you're right. One out of four times. Way to go. In other words, random chance. So we're not nearly as good at that as we think we are. But we also do use imagery. I can imagine how to get home. I can sit here right now and imagine if I was walking home, what I would see on my left and my right. Right. I can imagine what it looked like in the house I lived in as a kid growing up. I can imagine what it looked like walking in the door and walking up the stairs and walking to the right and to the end of the hall past mom and dad's room and then there's my room on the right. Which is now my cousin's room because, or sorry, my, my nephew's room because my sister bought the house from mom and dad and my dad died and now it's turned into somebody else's bedroom that's not a shrine and that upsets me. <laughs> but you can do that, right? You can imagine stuff. Imagery. So that's, that's an important part of this. We solve problems with our memories, with cognition in general, and then in memories in particular. And in fact, I know a lot of the lawyers that talk about the cognition class can be problem solved. That's an important thing. And if 
I'm doing, and let's think of, well, there was a bunch of calculus written up here on the board. If I was to ask you to solve some kind of mathematical problem, some kind of statistical problem, you use your knowledge to solve the problem. The problems can, have, can be very specific with a specific answer. They can be fuzzy problems like, what am I going to wear today? Or what am I going to have for breakfast? Oftentimes those are fuzzy. They have an answer. But there's a, a lot of possible answers. right? But again, you're still using memory because if I say, what am I going to have for breakfast? I have to remember what's in the fridge. I remember what's in the cupboard, etc. A word I despise, creativity. I don't despise it because of post-creativity, I just can't define creativity. It's like novel solutions to problems. And that involves knowledge about things. One of the greatest examples of this, if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, have you ever seen that? It's a good movie. Nobody? Okay, good. Because um, there's the part when the air scrubber in the command module blows, and they need to make a brand new air scrubber. And because NASA weren't quite thinking about this, they made two different kinds of air scrubbers, one for the lunar module, one for the command module. So what they do is they make an adapter that makes, they basically fit a square peg in a round hole. They make an adapter to use the air scrubber from the lunar module, which is the one that went to the moon, in the command module from the moon. How did they do this? Engineers at NASA took all the stuff they had, the astronauts, the three astronauts actually had in the command module, dumped it on the table and said, how are we going to make this fit in here with this stuff? And in fact, what they used was plastic that some of their sort of jumpsuits were coated in, like bags. They used duct tape. They used cardboard from binders that had procedures written in them for computer programming to program the Apollo 13 capsule. And these engineers had to know that they had this stuff there, and they had to do that. That's creativity, for sure. And from then on, in fact, there was only one kind of air scrubber uh, in uh, any uh, uh, space mission. Now, see, the interesting thing is, I've seen that movie and that part. I remember that autobiographically, because I was eight years old in 1973 when Apollo, or, I'm going to say 71 Apollo. So I was like six or eight years old. I remember that like, there were astronauts, and they were all going to die. It's very, it very clear to me. These guys creatively solved a problem. And they did this because they were really, really smart. The people running the moon missions were really, really, you have no idea, you can't even fathom how smart these guys were. You've got to understand something. There is more, there's more computing power in this phone than there was in the entire <coughs> mission control for running moon missions. There was 4K of memory in the navigation computer. Uh, all, uh, 11, well, Apollo 9 up to 17. 4K. When they change something, they'd actually write code in machine code. Yeah. World's changed again. It's amazing anybody made it there and got back. It's great. 19, you know, 1969, Hey, look, people are around other worlds. Now it's like, yeah, astronauts go up to the space. Guys jump out of big balloons for Red Bull. Look at it on Mars for now. I'm already, anyway, I love the space stuff. 
lot of space stuff. But that takes creative solutions. Um, so you need to use memory and need to acquire store and retrieve information or do any of these things. No matter what any of these things are, you have to store it, acquire it, store it, and retrieve it. <coughs> right? It couldn't have been the case that the, the guys, for the, the engineers on the ground at NASA went, I don't know. What even are these things? Teach me. Right? <laughs> they didn't know what the stuff was. So one way to think about memory then, it seems to me, is the persistence of learning. Uh, a lot of you took learning with me last term, and you know it's just getting stuck in. Now we're gonna—it's gonna be persistent. And where does memory end, and uh, sort of learning end, and memory begin? That's a gray area. I don't know the answer. It's like where does where does sensation and perception begin? I really don't know, and I don't think even worrying about it's useful. All right. Pretty much everything we do mentally as humans needs the use of memory. Okay. It's hard to come up with something that we do that is behavioral in any sort that doesn't involve memory. Okay? So without memory, we couldn't do any of the interesting cognitive things. And when you see people that have memory problems, um, then you realize how much almost how much of their humanity is missing. And that's a sort of amorphous thing, but if you ever talk to someone, a relative that has Alzheimer's, or if you ever talk to, um, well, my dad had a brain tumor and he would cut some stuff. And part of the person seems to be gone when they can't remember things. Even if it's just basic, stupid things that don't matter. It's like part of them is gone. It's a really pervasive part of being human. I'm going to say that memory is the core of cognition. I think without memory, we have we can't do all the other interesting cognitive things we do because we have to learn how to do them and remember that learning and it has to persist. Are there things that are built in? Yeah, of course. Do we have built-in modules for different cognitive problems? Yeah, of course we do. But we have to have information to solve problems. And it has to persist. Question so far make sense? Am I selling you on this? Okay. Yay. Yeah. Um, when you retrieve a memory mm -hmm. and you look, I don't know if it's to the right or to the left, because um, so when you're trying to think of something that you already know yep. and you're retrieving it, yep. um, I think that your eyes go to the right. I think it depends on the person. I mean, I know I often look up. I used to do this when I was writing the thing. I would, in fact, I do it all the time. And I've actually watched my daughter in these images, the same thing. I don't know if where it could be a, something built into her DNA for me or something. But I would always do that. I, in fact, I would often have people come by and thinking I was cheating my tests because I was looking up and down. <laughs> and like looking around. Because I, I just, you know. So it might be the case. I've not heard that. I've heard um, before, too, that yeah, I think it's if you look up to the brain. You're making something up, and if you're right. right to the left, I'm going to hear something. Yeah. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> that may be true. I, I, I don't know that I've heard that. Um, I do know that I've often wondered why people do that, do the looking around and they're trying to remember stuff. And I think it's trying to avoid interference. That's just my guess. 
They're like the stuff in front of you is interfering with remembering whatever it is, so you sort of look away. But offhand, I don't know if I heard that. That's interesting, though. I mean, it may be very well be true. It also, I mean, if this is one of these things, though, then, like, how accurate is that? Well, there was an episode of CSI. Yeah. And the, the investigator actually found out that the mom was lying because of this and that. Mm -hmm. You know what's good in that? Lie to me was better than CSI. Yes. Than yes. Yeah. By the way, on CSI, which one has the guy with the red hair? Yeah. Yes. Who's my impression that? Who's what? Are you okay? <laughs> what are you guys? <laughs> he did that for five years of Blue, then he quit that show to make movies, which he never made. Yeah. Then he came back and does the same thing. Please, same character. Are you okay? It's Zoolander. It's Zoolander. He's got those looks, yeah. Here's some questions we can ask about memory. Um, this, who knows the, where this comes from? All science gives the statement, I do not know. Where does that quote come from? That comes from Commander Data in the episode Nick Gilliam. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're dealing with Nick Gilliam. I don't know if it's actually the episode. Yeah. But he says that. And I love it. I do not know. So here's some questions. Are memories permanent? These are things you know, I want you to think about through the course. Um... Maybe. <laughs> Think about it. You forget stuff, but is that a failure of, like, is it gone? Is it a failure of, of, of retrieval? Is it a failure of storage? Did you never really learn it? But if it, what if they're permanent and they're just not stored properly? Think about all the things you learned as a little kid. All the autobiographical events throughout your life. Maybe a lot of it's in there. Maybe, and, and Wilder Penfield, who found some things like this, it was overplayed a little bit, but Penfield, who was a, a Canadian uh, neurologist, um, I mean, the, the, the street that the psychology building the Gill's on is called Rue Dr. Penfield, okay? I mean, he was kind of important. And what Penfield did, he did, it used to be when you had a tumor, they didn't have MRIs, so what they do is they'd open your head up. And usually people had some kind of experience before they would have a seizure. So what he would do is he'd go in and he'd, he'd, he'd put your head open. And you'd be awake, because you have to be awake during these things. Um, you get a local anesthetic for cutting your head open. There's no sensory neurons in your brain. And it doesn't hurt when you're, they're in your brain, right? No, no, they're in your brain, no. And of course, you're pretty sedated. Yeah, okay. You're pretty sedated. Um, I know my, my dad had, a, had one done, had a, uh, a biopsy done, I remember. And they drilled like into his temple to get part of the tumor, and he was awake through it. But he was so sedated. I think there's a do a little anesthetic, but you're so full of some benzodiazepine that you don't really even. I talked to him right afterwards, like kind of six eight hours afterwards. He goes, "Yeah, I feel like I've had 14 martinis." I said, "Yeah, it's because they drilled into your head." He goes, "Yeah, I know. It's like, wow." I said, well, enjoy the drugs, Dad. Most people can't take these things legally. <laughs> so, you know, it's got to be an upside to you having brain cancer. Um, so what they would do is they'd cut open your head, and they would, he would poke around, and he would stimulate parts of your brain. And when 
Uh, you may remember the Heritage Minute thing when the woman said, Dr. Penfield, I smelled her toast. <laughs> so she smelled her toast before she had a seizure. What would happen would be that he'd get in there, he'd start poking around, and as soon as she smells her toast, he goes, now I know where the tumor is. It's not, I mean, it's on the surface, it's pretty obvious, but most of them are underneath that. And you don't just want to go, it's in here. You know, I got the right one. And when he was doing this, he did have cases, when you read some of his stuff, where he would be poking around in someone's cortex and, and sending a small amount of current, and they'd go, I'm at my fourth birthday party. So maybe this stuff's still in there. But think about how you encode things when you're four years old. You remember your relevant crap. You ever ask a four-year-old what they did today? <laughs> and they don't do it. Like, I said to you, what did you do today when you got up? I said, well, I got up. Uh, I checked Facebook. I made myself some coffee. I picked what to wear. You can go through the whole thing. It's no problem. When you ask a four-year-old, what did you do today? They say, well, first, yeah. squirrel. <laughs> um, and I was in school, and the walls are green. <laughs> so? Because like, you remember the irrelevant, right? And very rarely is that useful. So you actually learn how to encode things properly as you get older. I know when I moved back here in 1996, I lived here when I was very young, until I was about two and a half. And we walked into the Churchill Plaza Library just because we were walking around checking stuff out. And I used to go there for story time when I was like two. Because um, we lived in those apartments across the way from Churchill Plaza. And my mom would take me for story time. And before we walked in, I said, if you go into the basement, the walls are going to be yellow. If we walk downstairs, and my wife and my daughter looked at me like, yeah, okay. And we walked in, and we're like, oh, they're yellow. <laughs> but I don't remember any content any stories that were read to me. I remember for reasons that escaped me the color of the walls in 1967. Right? That's irrelevant. But it was still there. <coughs> it was still there, right? So are the memories permanent? Well, considering they have to be stored biologically, it seems to me at some level there has to be some decay, some actual physical decay. But I think they're a lot more permanent than we think they are. That would be my way of looking at it, and I'm hedging my bets, obviously. Where are memories stored? In your brain. Um, <laughs> it's all I got. I don't think we know. Um, can we say the mechanism by which they're stored? We're starting to understand that. We're starting to understand that uh, experiences, if you look at the brain pattern when you have that experience, the pattern of activation, if you can recreate that pattern, you will have that memory. Um, that's starting to become somewhat clear. How does that work? I don't know. Is there a little center in your brain that stores everything? Where they stored? No. Is there something that stores, helps store things? Oh, yes. It's a campus. It's very important. It's that big. And it is what consolidates episodic memories, autobiographical events. We know that. That seems pretty clear. Can you improve your memory? Sure. Learn how to encode things properly. There's a lot of little tricks you can use. Think about when you first got to university. Because what's studying if not trying to make learning persistent? Right? Because if you remember, most people when they're in high school, this is how you study. You just read. Just read. Just keep looking at it. Eventually, it kind of gets in. And then you get here, and 
Instead of being taught every day for 75 minutes, you're taught twice a week for 70 minutes, and you're expected to learn the rest on your own, thank you. And then suddenly it's like, oh, can you try that thing where you just read? It just doesn't work. So you learn how to study. Right, you learn about mass versus distributed practice, right? You learn little chunks. You learn to do it interactively. You learn how to code better. So can you improve your memory through strategies? Yes. Can you do it through pharmacological means? Uh, not yet. There is stuff that's out there that is exceedingly early days. Exceedingly early days about improving memory. Um, will this happen in our lifetime? Probably. Uh, but is it something that don't believe when <coughs> someone tells you some dietary supplement improves your memory? Because what they're doing there is they're lying to you. There are no data that suggests any of these things do anything for your memory. Ginseng or anything like that. Do you have an opinion on that luminosity or whatever it is, the brain training that's all over YouTube? Oh, that's just, that's basically teaching people strategies. That's all that is. That's just encoding strategies? Yeah, it's just encoding strategies. The same sort of thing that, um, you know, Plato talked about the method of loci. And this is thousands of years old. It's people packaging stuff in this. That's all that's um, Do those things work? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, because you can learn how to encode them. And you, a lot of times you get implicitly, sometimes you do explicitly. Sometimes the professor will say for the first couple of weeks of the year, and the first year, says, here's how you actually study. Don't study just by reading. It doesn't work. Right? Study by So those kind of things, do they help? Yeah. Um, but are they... Typically what those things are are just repackaging things that we've known literally for thousands of years. Very often. Very often. Yeah. A friend of mine teaches memory class. I think he's retired now, but less. And what he does is there's a method that I think it's played a talk about this, which is you just associate people or things with where they are in the room. It's called the method of loci, or loci, I think, uh, And he gets people to stand up and say they're in the class this big, and by the end of the class, he's memorized everyone's name. It's something that can be done. Right? People tell him, oh, you're magic. And it's like, and he is very short. He looks a little magical elf. But, <laughs> but he's so, he's only about that tall. We used to do, uh, we put the screens up. Maybe he just come up the next class, and he'd throw the, the, the string way up there and just uh, screw with him. Um, But that's an old strategy. A lot of these strategies are pretty old things. And I mean, what you have to do is realize a lot of times that can't, does this practice help? Sure, keeping yourself mentally active? Yeah. And a lot of times that's all those things are. Yeah. Will the day come, though, where we can do it pharmacologically? I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. Um, but don't think that anything will do that for you right now. No kind of pill you could take being sold at some place that sells protein in a big jar. A store I like to call the placebo store, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you don't really do that. They may help make you good or whatever, but it's not going to do any problem. We don't know yet. We start there. But there are methods. How are memories stored? Now, 
Again, they're in your brain. <laughs> That's sure. How is this accomplished? Now, there's two things. You can think about how is it done with sort of wet neurophysiology, but also how is it done mechanistically? Right? So there are going to be different systems and, and, and mechanisms that do things. How do they do it? How do they operate? We don't have to necessarily get inside something's nervous system to determine how a mechanism works. Right? And those of you guys that took learning know about this, that we can model a lot of things without getting inside the brain, looking at MRI, etc. So if I do forget stuff, is it actually gone? So that's like along with this. This is an interesting question because this morning I was wondering, I was, I was thinking about a song this morning that uh, I really liked in when I was like in grade 13. Showing how old I am. So when I was in grade 13, I used to listen to the, the radio station from Western, I was in London, and on Thursday nights they had a reggae show, and I used to tape it. Right? Because I didn't have a whole bunch of reggae albums. And I was thinking of this one song, and I think it's from a certain man. And I couldn't remember the band. I just couldn't. So what I did is I used the hive of mine. Right? I went on Facebook, I said, maybe early, maybe 80s Canadian reggae bands. Finally, someone said it was Messenger, and that's like, yes, it was Messenger. I had completely forgot. But I knew it as soon as I saw it. So was it gone? Well, no, it wasn't gone. It was misfiled somehow. Right? But as soon as I got the item, the ultimate retrieval cue was the item itself. As soon as I got the retrieval cue, and it was somebody who posted a link to a thing with Canadian Reggae, and I read through it, and I went, oh, Messenger. And I felt all upset. I still can't find the song, because that was the name of the song. I just know some lyrics, and they're just generic radio lyrics. They mention words like, you know, I read. It's, it's <laughs> Googling that doesn't work. Some memory is similar to memory that other species have. Well, it's going to be similar if it's with them. But where are we different? There is, humans are pretty exceptional animals. We're just animals, but we're pretty neat animals. There's something pretty special about us. There's, there's a sort of human exceptionalism. There's stuff that no other animal can do. A lot of that is probably driven by language. But you know how people get all excited in the animal, if you read any animal, any animal stuff, and they say, you know, a chimp has to say, if you teach a chimp sign language, which is still a little bit debatable, but let's say that's all true, it will have a vocabulary as good as a four-year-old. Big deal. It's impressive, I guess. But four-year-olds, a lot of them still poop in their pants. <laughs> They're still kids. So there's something pretty special about us. But there are commonalities, and those are actually quite cool, because we can look at it from an evolutionary angle and talk about how memory and how cognition and how intelligence evolve. Now, there's a catch to this. We have to study this scientifically. Right? We can't just sit there and say, I think it works like this, because then we're becoming 
dangerously close to becoming philosophy. And philosophy is great, except that it actually is about argument. It's not about using the scientific method. Science is about measurement, control, and prediction. And about experimentation. So we have to actually run experiments to look at our results and see if we've got something that makes sense, not just, I think it works like this. If you read a lot of philosophy, uh, epistemology, like theory of knowledge, it really, in a lot of respects, is early psychology. And it's early cognitive psychology, except no one's doing an experiment. When Wundt comes along and starts doing experiments uh, on psychophysics, then Ebbinghaus comes along in the 1890s and starts doing memory experiments, then we got experiments. Before that, a lot of people were seeing sensible things, but they were just argument. Right? So we have to run the experiments, which Ebbinghaus is the, would be the father of that. Science about cause-effect relationships. So what would make you remember something? What would make you forget something? How do we measure and control something we can't kick? Uh, it's an expression of a friend of mine, Rob, Rob Hampton, who's a uh, psychology prof at Emory University of Atlanta, Georgia. Rob and I went to school together in grad school. And Rob's, Rob always says he has a problem with something he can't kick. You can't kick a memory. You can't touch it. Right? Gravity, that's easy. I can measure that. I can see that. I can measure how fast your heart's beating. Memory is kind of an amorphous topic when you think about it. So we have to measure and control something we can't touch. And we don't even know where it is. So should we quit? Well, if we quit, then the class will be over, and then that will be it. So no. What we do is we operationalize this. So to say we, we have to say we'll measure variable A, which we believe to be correlated with memory, or the result thereof. So the result will be. And it's a, it's a somewhat subtle distinction, of course. Right? So I might use this as a very common one you're going to see throughout this course, the percentage of words recalled. A very common thing that we use in, in memory research is we give you a list of words and ask you to recall them or recognize them. And I think we can all agree that's the result of memory. Am I actually measuring memory? But I'm measuring the result of it, so that's okay. Number of word fragments completed. Now, if I'm asking you for a list of words, if I give you a list of words and you recall them, that's clearly memory. We would all agree, I think anybody in here would argue that if I give you a list of words, give you a five minute, what we call retention, or a five minute time where you did nothing else, and then I had you recall them, said, How many words can you remember? That's easy. We all say that's memory. However, if I give you a list of words, chalk she uses doing her math and doing the chalk in here. I gave you a list of words and one of the words on the list was coffee and many of you have seen me use this example before. And then you recall the word coffee. Well, yeah, that's memory. Nobody's going to argue with that. If I give you this, and ask you to fill in the blanks, is that memory? Does that show that you remembered the words I gave you? Well, you don't 
need to have seen the word coffee in my list to fill in that blank. Those blanks. Correct. You don't. Because I could give you I guess I still cocoa. You can fill that one. But you know what? You're more likely to fill in this one. The one you've just seen. And this one, the one you haven't just seen. If you saw it. So while you don't need the experience to solve the task, having it improves your performance. Seems to me that's memory. You know what the neat thing is? When you do experiments like that, and you do what are called word fragments, people don't know those things were on the list. Because you do them so quickly. You flash the word fragments every five seconds. They fill in the blank. Fill in the blanks. Well, that's shorter than five seconds, but roughly every five seconds. And I'm asking you to fill in the blanks. And in fact, you don't tend to notice that those words were on the list of words I just gave you five minutes before. And when we ask people again in these experiments, did you notice anything about the words? Some people will say, yes, yeah, some of them might think about those fragments were on the list. And they say, they say to them, did that help you? And they say, I noticed one that I tried to remember with the others, and they're coming so fast it wasn't worth it. But most people say, no, I didn't notice anything. The cool thing is, you're recalling the word has no correlation whatsoever with you filling this in properly or not. They're completely independent of each other. Showing that we have different systems at work here, operating by different rules. That's pretty cool. And in fact, if you take someone that has amnesia from a, a lesion in their brain, they can't remember. When you give them a list of words, then five minutes later you say, I gave you a list of words, they'll look at you and go, really? <laughs> Who are you? say, can you try uh, recalling the list of words? And sometimes, because they got KC in Toronto, uh, he had a very nasty motorcycle accident and uh, severe temporal lobe damage and basically uh, a lot of hippocampal damage. He has trouble. His memory is really not in good shape. He has actually no autobiographical memory. Well, he probably has it. It's just not accessible to him. <coughs> so it's not just that he can't create new ones. He has He can't access any of them. So if you say, can you remember your first day of school or something like that? It's like, I don't know. And in fact, he will look at you and say, I can guess. Because he, he knows that he has this problem. So when you give KC the list of words, and then five minutes later, you say, can you recall the list of words I gave you? He literally will say, I'll guess, but I, I don't have any memory of that whatsoever. And then you say, okay, what I want you to do is fill in the blanks on these. And he's better at the ones he's seen than the ones he hasn't seen. The fragments he hasn't seen. Showing that he remembered something. <coughs> so is it memory? That? Yeah, it's a different kind of memory. So word fragments, well, at first it doesn't mean you think, well, anybody can do that. It doesn't involve memory, it actually does. But it's memory you're not aware you have. It's what's called implicit memory. Whereas asking you to recall the word, and that's explicit memory. Implicit memory is what? Memory you're not aware that you have. Like the how to ride a bike, how to float a baseball. 
you know, how to walk. Simplicity. You couldn't really tell them how you walk. You do. Your ability to read is implicit. Almost everything we do is probably much more good by implicit than explicit in that. Right? Because think about how much stuff you know that you don't always have just at the tip of your tongue. But it's all in there. And you're not aware. Like, you don't know when you learn. You know, what's the capital of Canada? I was going to Ottawa. When did you learn that? I don't know. How did you learn it? I have no idea. Right? But it's in there. But you're not aware you have it. And the interesting thing about KC is he has knowledge like that. He was at, um, he used to play with engines a lot. <coughs> He was a kind of a tinkerer kind of guy. He um, worked on engines as a hobby. You know, guys work on cars. And you can ask him how to do a tune-up in the 1973 VW Beetle, and he can do it for you. And then you say, how did you learn that? And he has no idea how he learned it. He will look at you, and his, his honest answer is, doesn't everyone know how to do that? He has no Explicit memories whatsoever. No autobiographical memories whatsoever. He knows that his mom is his mom, but he has no memories of her being his mom, which is really, feel bad for that. His family have been amazing letting him be studied so much because that's the only good that can come of an injury like that. He's an interesting fellow. I got to meet him. Um, he's a fascinating guy. Because he's just this guy who didn't wear a helmet and got in a bad accident. He was thrown 30 feet from his motorcycle. It's 10 meters. For those of you who are playing metric. <laughs> so it's tough, right? What do you the kind of errors you make? <coughs> what the kind of errors you make? What if, here's, a, here's a cool explicit or sort of implicit memory experiment. <coughs> This is an honors thesis a student did with me a year ago. People were watching a computer screen, and every time the screen flashed, they had to hit the space bar. That's pretty easy. People do it, they learn the task pretty easily. Now, in one ear, they hear a story that they're not paying attention to. And the other ear, they're hearing a story, and they have to repeat what's said in that ear. Okay? So this is called dichotic listening, and they're shadowing one ear, repeating what's said in their right ear. Yeah, no, in their left ear, and there's something else in their right ear. The something else in their right ear is a, is a passage, is this another story. They're both read by the same person, by the way. It's two stories at once. And the one in the right ear is a story that has the word president in it 35 times. It's a science fiction story. And in one group, the screen flashing follows the word president. And in the other group, the screen flashing has no correlation whatsoever with the word president. Okay? So in the first group, the experimental group, the word president happens, the screen flashes, they hit the space bar. If they're actually... If they've learned something, they learned that president predicts flash, they should get quicker at the reaction time, right? And they do. Then at the end of the experiment, my student, Marius, should write down his name, 
name is Marius Shostalo. And if you looked at him, you would, I think the Ishtvan Imre, you would go, same guy. Seriously, it's not the same guy, but they are enough to assume the same that you would think that they were related somehow. So Marius, in the experiment, he asked people, did you notice what was in your right ear? Um, one person actually read the story before and said, I think it's this story. He said, yeah. But we looked at his data, and it's no different than anybody else's. The only thing anybody noticed was that I was reading the story. Steve Broderick reading those stories? Yeah. So all people noticed. So first of all, it's pretty cool, because people get quicker. They've learned that president predicts. And they, but they don't remember anything about the, what's in the right ear. That's cool. Now let's look at the errors. This is an experiment that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I've never done. And what the experiment would involve would be, what if we had the words, uh, 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 sorry, backing up. Are they remembering the meaning of the word president, or are they the word president sounds? So what if we did it again and had words like king, leader, prime minister? Those are similar to the meaning of president. Or we have words like resident and hesitant. Is it the sound? I suspect, I'm almost certain it's the sound. That's something I wanted to do for a long time. I just never got around doing it because it's kind of a pain to set up. But that would tell us the kind of errors people made would tell us what they were actually encoding. Even though they can't tell us. They can't tell us any of this because they don't even know they're doing it. That was a neat honors thesis, and he was the, he's the only person I think I've ever, only student I've ever had, that any of us ever had, that collected his data the night before the honors thesis was Yeah, that wasn't good. But it was an amazing experiment. He used to sit there and not take any notes. And this is before anybody put notes on the internet, it's like 1997. He'd sit there in his chair and just listen. And I'm like, you do okay in school if he wasn't trying. It was fine. And then he said to me, would you, would you be my official uh, supervisor? I said, well, no one else wants to supervise you. So, because you're lazy. So, yeah, I'll do it. And he said, well, that's good. Then I said, well, one thing. If you screw up, I'll kick your ass. He said, no, no problem. I want you to be uh, you know, working hard behind. I said, no, I'll actually punch you in the face. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, he ended up doing this as a killer experiment. And I still have to do experiment, too. So maybe I'm lazy, but <laughs> I'm a tenured professor. Um, <laughs> what's your memory like? What are some analogies? I think it said it's like, and this goes back, obviously, a long time, because we don't use wax tablets anymore. What are like a wax tablet? Okay? A wax tablet is what uh, Greek and Roman kids used to write on in school. It was wax and it used a stylus to lay. And then you can kind of erase it by melting the wax a little bit and zoom in. It's like an etch a sketch. Etch a I knew there was a reason to take Latin for four years in school. Don me etch a sketchicus for a affair. Let's give me your etch a sketch. Scoundrel. <laughs> there are these little words. If I were into a Roman soldier, if I ever time traveled, or the Pope, perhaps, I guess he speaks English. 
I said, and that's a stat. The dog is standing on the table. <laughs> so he said, like, well, kind of, because stuff goes in and it gets kind of, it, then it's gone. That's kind of like stuff that's sort of in your, in your um, short-term memory, stuff that's available to you right now. What about a sieve? Is it like a sieve? Like, some stuff gets through and sits there, other stuff just goes away. Yeah, okay, I've heard that, that analogy's not bad. Is it like a library? Get a little bit better. Have you ever seen the movie The Name of the Rose with Sean Connery? Nobody? Okay, okay. If you haven't seen it, then my little story I'm going to tell doesn't matter, so I'm not going to tell the story. This is me doing a Sean Connery impression. <laughs> you should see it, though. Name of the Rose, uh, Sean Connery's great movie, and Christian Slater. It's just awesome. But anyway, a library, of course, think about it. You can get books, have them in front of you, or web pages. Back in the, you know, we used to use these big papery things called books. Um, but even think about that using the library website. You pull up an article, you read it. That's what's kind of like available to you right now in your what I call consciousness, your short term memory, whatever. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff stored in there. And unless someone has misfiled it, you can go get that stuff. You just have to know how to search. Right? You just have to know how to get it. And then you can pull it up. It might take a little while. Sometimes it might be, you know, interlibrary loans, all those kind of things. But usually it's there and you can get it. So the library isn't a bad analogy. Thinking about stuff that's available to you right now, the idea of a workbench. Or even if you want to think about a computer desktop. That kind of analogy. Where there's a lot of stuff. You have other things you can work on, but the tools you need, you pull them out and you use them. Right? Networks. Now this, I find this is where I think we're starting to get into something that I like a lot more, because a network, and I'm thinking like a computer network here. You have different resources on different parts of the network. It's all stored in different places. And if it's set up properly, to the user, it's pretty seamless. Like, I don't know where all my memories are stored in my brain. Don't. Anybody knows that. But it's seamless to me, no matter if they're here or here or here or here or anywhere. And if I set up a network properly, like, you know, think about the internet. When you use Google to search for something, or if you're one of the four people that uses Bing, <laughs> Microsoft are so far behind that the times, you know, they're trying up where they have zillions of dollars, but it just seems. If you use, if you Google, if you use Yahoo, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so if you use Google to search for something, you don't care where it comes from. Like, uh, the day of, of, of the uh, Sunday morning, Sunday morning. Woke up and I thought, I wonder if the lockout's over. So I typed in NHL lockout, and then I go to the, the news thing comes up, and I'm getting news sources from around the world saying lockout's over. And I got very excited, and I went about NHL 13, and I suck at it still. I'm 11 years into the season, we've got two wins. I'm going to keep working at it, though. I was reading the website this morning about tips and tricks with the new uh, high performance skating method. So I'm a grown up. Um, <laughs> 
But I didn't actually care where, that, where the stuff with the lockout came from, or where the thing where I found this morning where tips and tricks came from. I looked like, oh, it's a real gaming website. I'm fine. The nice thing about Google is it's got such a good algorithm that typically the top results are the good searches. Right? So when you think about Google, it's kind of like you're trying to look something up in your memory, right? The whole network, the whole internet, is almost the sum of all human knowledge, and you can just look it up there. And that's a nice analogy. Right? That's a nice analogy. So the resources you're looking for are all over the world. But you can find them because you have the right processes to look them up. So the, the, the network analogy is probably the one I like the best. It wasn't always so because the search engines used to suck. Before Google, search engines were horrible. They were just a waste of time. The idea of a filing cabinet is one you hear about sometimes. Which is, you know, but it's the same kind of thing as a network, except that this is, you can have everything. The filing cabinet, you just put things away properly in a filing cabinet, other than, you know, the way I file things is I open the door, throw them in, and close it, and never look at it again. That's something filing. <coughs> but that's not bad. I still don't think it's as good as a network. And of course, the computer. The computer analogy thrown in with the network analogy, so the local machine and then the wider network, the internet, I think is the, probably the best analogy we have. Now, don't overdo it. Don't over, overthink this stuff. and Don't, don't overuse the analogy. Of it, but it's probably the best version we have, best analogy we have is, is, is your own, call it, I'm going to call it working memory or short-term memory, is your desktop on your computer. And then everything else, even stuff on your computer or out in the network, that's the rest of your memory. Right? I think that's a pretty good analogy. So if we put the network together with the computer, and in fact, people talk about neural networks all the time. Your, your radius actually is a series of networks. I mean, that does help with the analogy. There's no argument there. I mean, of course, the internet is a series of tubes. So when you put the two together, <laughs> the internet is a series of tubes. I got this great, horrible, corrupt American politicians who are just wonderful. Analogies, which are ones that you will see throughout the literature if you're reading older stuff or newer stuff, you can see one of those um, or more. Memory is always seen as a thing, right? It's always something you can kick. And a kind of a space. certain you couldn't really explain it to me, most of you. Now, there's a TCP IP protocol, and you, know, you don't know that. Who cares? Some of us know that stuff because we're geeks and losers. The other kids let us know it. But for the most part, we don't have to. But we know the internet's a thing, a space. You can imagine it. You can imagine all the computers in the world hooked up together. 
We encode stuff. They all have encoding. It's putting stuff away, be it the wax tablet, where you actually just scratch into a piece of wax, or be it save file as, or save this search. Right? If you're signing into Google, you can save your searches. And then you're signing into Google, you pull up your phone and keep your old searches. It's awesome. So you encode it. You save stuff. We store it. We might store stuff locally in our computer. Right? This slideshow is stored locally in my computer. But it's also out in the cloud in a whole bunch of different places. Backed up in like four different places so I never lose the stuff. Right? So even when we're storing locally, a lot of times we're mirroring to somewhere else anyway. Right? Dropbox or whatever. We can retrieve it. How do I retrieve stuff? Now again, this is something we're not, we have ideas how this works, pretty decent ideas, but it's not as simple as the way that I can search for something that I have. I can talk to my phone and tell it to go to my Dropbox and open a file. That's easy. But think about a Google search. And if you've got Google Desktop Search installed, or if you're using even uh, if you're using OS 10, if, if, if you go up to um, what's it called again? The search thing is called Spotlight. Uh, it'll search your local machine, but it'll also, if you have the option enabled, it'll search the web as well for whatever you're looking for. Right? So we can retrieve it. But so does the filing cabinet. So does the library. The sieve does too. It's the stuff that's stayed in the sieve. Now, I think some have more of each of these than the others. And in fact, the reason I like the network, internet kind of, and with a local computer analogy, is that it has all of these things. And these things are key things in memory, coding, storage, and retrieval. I don't want to overdo the analogy. I can't remember. Someone must be DDoSing my occipital lobe. You know, it's too much. All right. Questions so far? All right. Some attributes of memory. Um, I think this will be our last slide today. But, uh, how long is it? Oh, it's a little short. Let's see. So memory has acquisition. We, we have to get, we have to learn stuff before we get persistence to learn it. We have to acquire the information. One of the key things we have is representation. We aren't just remembering an exact version of what we acquired during all. Usually, we're representing it somehow. The word representation is a great word. You just got to remember that it doesn't necessarily mean a picture. Okay? So we may be representing, because that sounds like it may be a picture all the time. It doesn't have to be a picture. Like if I said to you, the concept of bird, and yeah, I know you all immediately just thought of a bird, by the way, and imagined what it would look like. But it may be the case, think about this, it's probably stored like this, that birds have certain attributes. They have feathers, they have wings, they can fly, they lay eggs, and they're delicious. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Nothing better than deep fried chickadees. 
It's a joke. It's a joke. Deep fried chicken in my life. Asparagus. Again, kidding. So, and then what do all those words mean? Feathers and beaks and flying and eggs, etc. Right? So that may be just a big net. That's that kind of network representation doesn't have to mean a picture. It could, but it doesn't have to. And that's when I say representation, we, most people tend to think of a picture, and it doesn't have to be, in fact, probably usually isn't the picture. I think the picture gets constructed out of the representation a lot of the time. Unless you're actually remembering a picture. You know? Or you're remembering a face. We do have a specialized system for remembering human faces. And sorry, that's, that's, a, that's a gift. We know that. Direct experience is like what you're having right now. It's, a, it's called primary memory and previous states, working on stuff, and other information that's always stored as secondary memory. These are terms that we still use today, and they go back to William James, the guy who wrote the very first psychology textbook, Principles of Psychology, in 1890, which I think I talked about just the other day. You really, if you get a chance at some point, if you're a psych major, just browse through a, a copy of Principles. The nice thing is, I think you can get it for free in the um, iBook store, the iPad, because it's out of copyright. That's the beauty of it, so it's not like it's, you gotta pay 900 bucks for it. Yeah, it's a textbook, a free textbook. You ever think that would happen? Now, it's from 1890, so it's kind of out of date. But he got a lot of stuff right. And he couple terms primary and secondary memory. Still say it today, gotta give William James credit. His brother, by the way, Henry James, was the, you know, the author, Henry, Henry James. Henry James, very psychological author when you read his novels. William James writes like he's writing prose. You actually think that maybe William James should have been the author, and Henry James should have been the psychologist. So it's kind of interesting. Questions? Good. All right, I'll see you on Wednesday. We're coming up in a few times. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.